0: Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you now. As mentioned in the first part of this three part series on Tom Thompson, other than my murder mystery parlor game that I published in 2004, in a few comments in my award-winning book, Algonquin Voices, Selected Stories of Canoe-Lake Women, I've avoided taking on the task of telling the Tom Thompson story. Firstly, this is because many people more experienced than I in the field of storytelling have extensively done so over the last hundred years. Secondly, as a lifelong Canoe-Lake resident, I always felt I might be too close to the topic to do it the justice it deserves— without a significant amount of what inventing Tom Thompson author Cheryl Grace called inventor creativity. However, with the anniversary of his burial at Canoe Lake at hand, I feel now I'm ready for this challenge. By the way, as mentioned previously, I take full responsibility for the way in which I've woven the story together and do hope that you find it entertaining and thought-provoking. So here goes. Drum roll, please. As we left off in part one of this journey, on Sunday, July 8th, sometime around one o'clock in the afternoon, Tom Thompson paddled off down Canoe Lake in the direction of Tea Lake, allegedly on a short fishing expedition. Normally, in traveling to Tea Lake Dam, Thompson would have headed straight south along the western shore, but according to 1930s biographer Blodwin Davies, and with no evidence to support this, he instead apparently headed around the east side of Little Wapameo Island, allegedly because the west side was full of logs. Ninety minutes later, at 3.05 p.m. to be exact, the putt-putt sound of Martin Bletcher Jr.'s boat was heard as he and Sister Bessie came into view, also on their way to Tea Lake. Not much was known about the Bletcher family until 2015 when Mary Garland, in her book Algonquin Parks Mowat, Little Town of Big Dreams, was able to uncover some new biographical information. According to Garland's research, of German heritage, Martin Bletcher Sr. was born in 1857 in Buffalo, New York, and in 1884 started a furniture manufacturing business with his half-brother, William Katz. In 1885, he married Louisa, also from Buffalo, and soon after daughter Bessie and son Martin Jr. were born in 1886 and 1891, respectively. Martin Sr. seems to have been well-liked in the Buffalo community. He was later described as a man of high ideals and sterling character, who hated sham and hypocrisy, but was always ready to recognize merit and worth. Park Ranger Mark Robinson mentioned in his diary of having gone on a canoe trip with him in 1909, once to Burn Island Lake and at another time to Rainbow Lake, one presumes to go fishing. Martin Jr. started his professional life as an electrical engineer, before becoming a skilled private investigator, a career he pursued until about 1928. Local gossip viewed him with some suspicion, likely due to the Canadian cultural bias against those of German descent that existed at that time. Mark Robinson even went so far as to consider him a German spy, and so noted this in his diary in 1917. Bletcher was married first in 1918 to a Patricia Baumer, and later, around 1930, to Carolyn Schroff. His first marriage didn't last long, and according to Garland's research, by 1925, Patricia was living on her own in Buffalo. Garland's research suggests that Martin Jr. was described as quiet, and someone who minded his own business. My own research indicated that he wasn't at all popular, didn't mix well with people, but was a wizard with machinery. He had a lot of expensive tools that he would keep in his boathouse. His second wife, Carolyn, also of German descent, seemed to get on well with Canoe Lake life. Mary Garland noted that Carolyn worked from time to time at the Algonquin Hotel on Joe Lake and at one time managed the Colson Canoe Trip Outfitting Store. Bessie, Martin's sister, was a schoolteacher and later an assistant principal. She never married and remained at the family home until she died in 1950. Some stories say that she and her brother didn't get along very well, One incident described Bessie throwing all of Martin's belongings into the lake. In my original research for my book, Treasuring Algonquin, Sharing Scenes from a Hundred Years of Leaseholding, I found correspondence that suggested, quote, that the locals were convinced that the Bletchers sat with binoculars watching the lake and all that passed by. There is, of course, no proof of this, and in fact the peeping Tom was likely a photographer neighbor across the way who was said to have spent hours looking through his telephoto lens at others on the lake. Another set of stories had Thompson using binoculars to spy on the Bletchers from the trainer's nearby dock. This story references an incident where Louisa Bletcher was flying the American flag without the British ensign flag flying above it, which caused quite a local fuss. This was considered a serious affront to proper flagpole etiquette at the time. But for more great Louisa Bletcher stories, you'll have to grab my book, Algonquin Voices, Selected Stories of Canoe Lake Women more that was added to the bletcher personas happened in the spring of 1938 a local canoe lake resident recalled finding a hearse at the canoe lake landing just before ice out curious he looked up the lake and saw two men with lanterns pulling a sled down the lake that turned out to be bearing the body of martin bletcher jr who had just died of a heart attack That eerie image, he said, stuck with him for decades. Another story had Bletchers' body falling out of the sled as they pulled it up a steep snowbank to the hearse. Again, another great story. My own memories of the Bletchers continue along this somewhat creepy theme. I remember their cottage was a place that we were warned to stay away from. We called it the Ghost House. I'm not sure whether it was an actual parental warning or if it was just a kids-to-kids warning likely coming from sharing too many Tom Thompson mystery stories over evening campfires in the 1960s. Unbeknownst to us in our campfire storytelling, a few years later, William Little specifically named Martin Bletcher as Tom Thompson's possible murderer. We'll talk more about this later. But now back to Tom Thompson's story. As reported in Mark Robinson's diary and mentioned previously, on the day that Thompson departed from Mowat, The Bletcher siblings, while on their way to Lake, had seen a canoe floating upside down between Gilmore Island and Big Wapameo Island. Having previously heard the canoe had drifted away from its dock, they presumed that this was the same canoe and decided that they would collect it on their way back from their boating excursion. Alas, when they returned, they could not find the canoe and concluded, I guess, that someone else had rescued it and thought nothing further about the incident until the next day when Thompson was reported missing. The first indication that something was amiss occurred on Tuesday, July 10th. Shannon Fraser reported to Mark Robinson, who noted it in his diary, that Thompson's canoe had been found upside down by Barton Bletcher Sr. Later, differing stories had Mowat Lodge guest Charlie Shim finding Thompson's canoe. Slightly worried, but not overly so, as Thompson was known to frequently come and go, Robinson organized a small search party to search the shorelines. His thinking, likely, was that Thompson had run into some trouble, sprained an ankle or a knee or some such thing, and was perhaps just sitting at the end of a portage, smoking his pipe and awaiting rescue. That same day, July 10th, Shannon Fraser sent a telegram to Dr. McCallum, advising him that Thompson's canoe had been found upside down, with no trace of him. Over the next few days, anxiety by the locals grew. Thompson's brother, George Thompson, arrived on July twelfth, and Robinson escorted him around the lake, where they interviewed several people, hoping, I guess, to get a better insight as to where Thompson might have gone. Though living in New Haven, Connecticut, Brother George was visiting family in Owen Sound, and one presumes that it was Doctor McCallum who advised him of the situation in the park. One ranger, Albert Patterson, was sent to Huntsville on July twelfth also to see if Thompson had possibly returned from his fishing trip and then gone into town without telling anyone. Also on July 12, Fraser wrote again to Dr. McCallum, this time advising him that Thompson's dove gray canoe had been found upside down, with both paddles lashed tight to the thwarts and his provisions packed and stowed in their proper place. On Friday, July 13, Robinson, with his 11-year-old son Jack, who was visiting from Barrie, walked a number of the nearby trails on the west side of Canoe Lake. They went to Gill and Gunther Lakes and along the Gilmore Tote Road. Although finding no sign of anyone having been there for some time, they did find one of Colson's canoes at the Gill Lake Portage. The next morning, George Thompson took the morning train back to Owen Sound, after having picked up the sketches that Thompson had left. Where and how many is not exactly clear. Years later, art expert David Silcox, the author along with respected artist harold town of tom thompson the silent and the storm would write i have never understood or read any plausible explanation why george thompson visited canoe lake immediately after thompson's disappearance and then not only left while everyone else continued the search for his brother but took most of thompson's sketches away with him if he presumed him dead why did he not take all of thompson's belongings And if he thought he might still be alive, why would he not have helped in the search? And why did he take away work that Thompson would have wanted? His behavior was odd, to say the least. On Sunday, July 15th, Robinson went out patrolling again, searching for Thompson, this time to the north and east of Canoe Lake, and again found nothing. On Monday, July 16th, eight days after Thompson had left Fraser's Landing, Dr. Goldwyn Howland, who was renting Taylor Statton's cabin on Little Wapameo Island, made a gruesome discovery. As a point of reference, Little Wapameo Island was less than half a kilometer from where Thompson had started his trip. Originally, the story was that while drinking his morning coffee on the front veranda, Dr. Howland noticed an object rise to the surface of the water some distance out from shore. He hailed George Rowe and Laurie Dixon, two fishing guides from Mowat, who had just happened to be passing by in their canoe. Pointing to the spot, he called to them to investigate. Paddling over, they quickly recognized the object as being the lifeless body of Tom Thompson. They towed the body to the edge of a nearby campsite on what it was now, Big Wapameo Island, and then quickly went to notify Ranger Mark Robinson. Upon hearing the news at around nine o'clock that morning, robinson phoned park superintendent george bartlett who as noted in mark robinson's diary notified by telegram north bay coroner dr arthur rainey as well as the county crown attorney bartlett then instructed robinson to stay with the body until the coroner arrived later martin bletcher jr and hugh trainer came and put a blanket over the body where it remained in the water all day that evening under directions from shannon fraser two undertakers arrived on the evening train. Roy Dixon from Sprucedale was an embalmer and coincidentally Mark Robinson's cousin. R.H. Flavelle was a furniture dealer from Kearney, Ontario, who also sold caskets and was the village undertaker. The next day, July 17th, Mark Robinson was concerned about Thompson's deteriorating body still lying in the water's edge of the campsite on Big Wapameo Island, Again, Robinson was advised by Superintendent Bartlett to continue to wait for the coroner's arrival, but, quote, should he not arrive shortly, he could move Tom's body out of the water and put it in a casket. This Robinson did later that day and asked Dr. Howland to examine the body in the process. According to Robinson's diary, a bruise was found on Thompson's left temple, about four inches long, which Robinson said was evidently caused by falling on a rock otherwise there were, quote, no marks of violence on the body. In Dr. Howland's official affidavit, he indicated that the bruise was on the right temple, not the left, and that there was air issuing from the mouth as well as some bleeding from the right ear. He deemed the cause of death to be drowning. Later that afternoon, Dr. Howland and the visiting undertakers advised Robinson that the body needed to be buried. Robinson again called Superintendent Bartlett on the Park Butch phone, who agreed. The casket was then carried to the Mowat Cemetery, where a short service was held, with Martin Bletcher Sr. reading several verses from an Anglican hymn book that Mark Robinson always carried. In attendance were eighteen people, including Mark Robinson, Martin Bletcher Sr. and Jr., Bessie Bletcher and her mother Louisa, Laurie Dixon, George Rowe, Charlie Shrim, Annie and Shannon Fraser, Hugh, Mrs. and Winifred Trainer, Molly, Ed, and Annie Colson, Edwin Thomas, who was the Canoe Lake station agent and his wife, and Charlie Pluman, a young guest at Mowat Lodge, who didn't know Thompson but was pressed into service as a pallbearer. Years later, Pluman's memories of this day would create all kinds of controversy. That evening, on July 17th, the coroner, Dr. Rainey, of North Bay finally arrived on the evening train. Robinson and Rainey first went to the Algonquin Hotel where he took evidence from Ed Colson and then they proceeded to the Bletcher Cottage on Canoe Lake where Robinson had assembled Dr. Howland, Martin Bletcher and Junior and Senior, Hugh Trainer, Shannon Fraser, Ed Colson, George Rowe and a tourist who was likely Charlie Shrim. Evidence was taken and based on that evidence the coroner agreed with Dr. Howland's conclusion that death was due to accidental drowning. Unfortunately, a copy of Dr. Rainey's official coroner's report has never been found, which makes confirming any of these details difficult. After the inquest was completed at about one-thirty in the morning of July 18th, Martin Bletcher Jr. drove the coroner, Dr. Rainey, and Mark Robinson by boat back to Joe Creek Portage, where the two walked to Robinson's cabin. Awakened a few hours later at 6 a.m., Dr. Rainey took the train back to North Bay. Later that day, Robinson noted in his diary that Shannon Fraser had advised him that he'd received a telegram informing him that a steel casket was being sent to exhume Thompson's body and return it to Owen Sound. At the time, Robinson wrote that he wasn't aware upon whose order this was, but it later turned out that Winifred Traynor had been the instigator on behalf of the Thompson family. According to Gregory Kleges in his 2016 book, The Many Deaths of Tom Thompson, after the burial at the moat cemetery while waiting at canoe lake station winnie trainer became aware and how is not exactly clear that a telegram had been received giving chen and fraser instructions to arrange for thompson's body to be returned to owen sound and not buried in the Mowat cemetery fraser as already mentioned had made arrangements for a canoe lake burial so for whatever reason he chose to stay silent about the family's request Trainer heard this at the Canoe Lake station and must have become quite upset because at Scotia Junction she departed the train and called Thompson's sister Margaret in Owen Sound. She advised Margaret that Thompson had been buried at Mowat and inquired as to whether or not the family, quote, wanted anything done, unquote. Trainor was advised that the family wanted Thompson's body to be brought home to Owen Sound. Phone call records suggest that Traynor first tried to engage Flavel to return to Canoe Lake, to exhume Tom's body. When Flavelle refused, she reached out to F. W. Churchill, a Huntsville undertaker, and convinced him to take on the job. Later that day, less than 24 hours after the coroner had left and barely 36 hours after Thompson had been buried, Churchill arrived at Canoe Lake on the evening train, and Shannon Fraser met him at the station. His instructions from the family, most likely relayed by Winnie Trainer whom he said years later was most persuasive, were to remove the body of Tom Thompson from the Canoe Lake Cemetery and transport it to Leith, Ontario near Owen Sound for final burial in the Thompson family plot. Shannon told Churchill that at that late hour there was no way he'd be able to find sufficient help for the job. He invited the undertaker to spend the night at Mowat Lodge and complete the task in the morning. The undertaker declined the offer, claiming that he didn't need any help, and with night falling insisted that Fraser drive him up to the gravesite right away. With some misgivings that weren't articulated till much later, Shannon drove him there, arriving at 9 p.m., and leaving him with only a small shovel and hurricane lantern for light. Though it seems strange from our perspective, in those days undertakers moving around in the dead of night was not at all that unusual. Around midnight, Fraser returned to the Mowat Cemetery. Although in 1956, Taylor Statton said that Fraser had told him that he had returned the next morning, but he found the undertaker finished and ready to return. Fraser helped the undertaker lift the newly sealed metal casket onto his wagon, and the two silently drove back to the train station. On the July 19th morning train, the undertaker and casket left Canoe Lake to the surprise of Mark Robinson, who seemed a bit miffed that as the resident park authority he hadn't been notified of Churchill's arrival, nor had he approved the exhumation. After appraising Superintendent Bartlett of the night's events, Mark was told to, quote, let it be, unquote. He was asked to return to the gravesite and be sure that the grave was filled in properly. Upon arriving at the cemetery, Robinson said years later he found only a shallow hole, which he thought was odd. Later, Shannon Fraser would also comment about that night, suggesting that the casket seemed to be awfully light and a little awkward to contain a body. Thompson's body arrived in Owen Sound on the night of Friday, July 20th, apparently with George Thompson escorting the casket, although some are not sure that this was true. There is also confusion as to where the body was conveyed. Some say it went to the Owen Sound funeral parlor, while others believe it went to the Thompson family home. Margaret, Tom's sister, wrote years later that George Thompson had returned to Canoe Lake to accompany the body home, but no one at Canoe Lake could ever recall seeing him there again. She also told her sister Minnie that none of the family, quote, wanted to see Tom, even if the body had been fit to see, and that they preferred to remember Tom as he was. Years later, in the 1960s, when the issue of whether or not Tom's body was really in the casket raised its head, Neighbours Agnes and Margaret McKean told the Owen Sound Sun Times in an interview that their late cousin John McKean had accompanied John Thompson, Tom's father, when he insisted that Thompson's casket be opened, in order to confirm that it was his son. Some question this claim, as you would think the difficult process of melting, the coffin solder, and the horror and stench of what lay inside would surely have been reported somewhere which extensive research has never been able to confirm. Molly and Shannon Fraser sent flowers to the Lee Cemetery just east of town, as on Saturday, July 21st, Tom Thompson was again laid to rest. According to the Klesje's book, The Many Deaths of Tom Thompson, when Dr. McCollum got word of Thompson's death, he immediately went to work on two Firstly he wanted to create a strong market for tom's paintings so he could sell them in a way that would obtain the best prices for the thompson estate secondly was a plan to quote build long-term critical interest in thompson's art presenting his work as quote a record of the north at a minimum or alternatively brilliant art at its best another idea proposed by some of thompson's artist friends and one that McCollum did act on was the building of a celebratory cairn on Canoe Lake at Thompson's favorite campsite just north of Hayhurst Point and across the lake from Mowat. This was quickly organized and completed near the end of September 1917. A main tourist attraction today, the Tom Thompson Cairn bears an inscription penned by friend and fellow artist J.E.H. MacDonald that reads, To the memory of Tom Thompson, artist woodsman and guide who was drowned in Canoe Lake July 8, 1917. He lived humbly but passionately with the wild. It made him brother to all untamed things of nature. It drew him apart and revealed itself wonderfully to him. It sent him out from the woods only to show these revelations through his art, and it took him to itself at last. His fellow artists and other friends and admirers join gladly in this tribute to his character and genius. His body is buried at Owen Sound, Ontario, near where he was born, August 1877. Today, the site also includes a large totem pole, which is a little odd given that totem poles are native to Canada's west coast and not associated usually with this part of the country. Here's what happened. In 1930, Blodwin Davies, the writer of the first biography of Tom Thompson, whom I'll talk about a little later, had arrived at Camp Omic in search of information concerning Thompson. Taylor Staton, known as the chief and owner of the camp, spearheaded the effort. The best description of the totem pole origins can be found in the book Fires of Friendship, the written history of the Taylor Staton camps. And I quote, One July day in 1930, Miss Blodwin Davies of Toronto arrived in camp in search of information concerning Tom Thompson. Small groups met to talk about the artist and to discuss plans for a celebration in his honor. Larger groups became interested, and soon the whole camp was infected. As a result of this enthusiasm, it was decided to erect a totem pole near the cairn, which would preserve in symbolic form the spirit and the achievement of the artist. The pole was designed by Hal Hayden and Gordon Weber. It was carved by Jack Ridpath, owner of Ridpaths Limited, a maker of fine furniture, and later a Canoe Lake resident, but was painted in camp. Frank Brock, a Canoe Lake resident, orchestrated the 25-foot pole's erection, which was difficult due to the fact that it needed to stand, quote, four-square to all the winds that blow across Canoe Lake. On August 16th, just as the sun was setting, watercrafts of every description slipped silently away from their moorings. On big Wapameo Island... Little Wapameo, and the Camp Omic shore to make their way to the Hayhurst Point. While the boats were taking up their positions, the chief, Mark Robinson, and others climbed up to the cairn. Mark Robinson dedicated the totem pole and added a few words of tribute to the artist. A birch bark canoe filled with wild flowers was paddled silently down an aisle of boats to a landing at the foot of the hill, where a guard of honor was waiting to carry it to the top. The canoe was placed at the foot of the totem pole. The paddles of the canoes below flashed in a salute, and simple emblems, wreaths of evergreen and wild flowers, were cast on the water. As the sunset began to fade and twilight stole softly in, the boats slipped quietly away, and the majestic totem was left in the northern peace and quiet, a picturesque symbol of a great artist and his deep love of the trails and waters of the north. Later, Frank Brock, wrote a commemorative poem describing the meaning of the scenes carved on the totem pole, and it reads as follows. A totem pole upon a hill against the azure sky An artist's great renown proclaims to every passerby The bird of wisdom gazes across the lake nearby A journey now completed, the folded wings imply His heart was in the forest, its message to him told when framed by Borealis, of sunset's burnished gold. Gone west, so says the arrow, as with the setting sun, a glorious day has ended, a life but scarce begun. No mansion held him captive, his home a tent might be, where roving spirit led him, so restless, yet so free. Upset canoe, the Indians say, on water's troubled breast, are symbols of the human soul, gone to eternal rest." For matchless skill in swimming, or diving neath the wave, the loon imparted to him the spirit of the brave. On lake with placid surface, or whipped by wind to foam, his canoe in safety glided and safely brought him home. No strings for lyre were needed, his music made by trees, as whispering of the white pine caressed by gentle breeze. The symbols of the craft gild, his being compassed round, In body, mind, and spirit a strength triune was found. T'was on the painter's palette he forged a tie to bind his name with the illustrious, whose acts enrich mankind. Foundation strong eternal, in woods and hills was laid, he lived in close communion with all things God has made the sparkling snow, the spring ice, the trees bejeweled with rain, each element in its season spoke message clear and plain. With canoe and paddle and pack sack, he wandered far afield, searching the master's gallery for treasures it might yield. The mystery of his tragic death was sealed within this man, yet may his life inspire us all, a life so brief in span. Today, the Tom Thompson totem pole and Cairn is a popular tourist spot and is maintained by the cooperative efforts of the Canoe Lake and District Leaseholders Association, local neighbors, and park officials. One repainting in the mid-90s had my twin sons paint the waves on the bottom pictograph. In normal situations, the burial of Tom Thompson at Leith on Saturday, July 25th, and the building of a celebratory cairn on Canoe Lake near his favorite camping spot would have been the end of the story. But alas, Tom Thompson and his death turned out not to be a normal story. The first undertow was intimated in Mark Robinson's diary comment on July 18th that, quote, There is considerable adverse comment regarding the taking of evidence amongst the residents. This, it seems, was just the beginning, though it wasn't until much later that folks began to get curious as to what Robinson was talking about, or better yet, whom was he talking about? his diary comment didn't indicate what kind of adverse comments there was, were and where such talk was coming from. The Canoe Lake community at that time was pretty small, having downsized considerably since the heyday of 700 plus people in the late 1890s when it was a bustling logging community. If anyone is interested in learning more about those days, Mary Garland's Algonquin Parks at Little Town of Big Dreams is a great read. Local hearsay suggests that one issue of concern was the Bletchers' failure to investigate the overturned canoe that they saw on their boat trip. One would have thought that Thompson's distinctive dove-gray canoe would have been instantly recognizable. Roy McGregor intimated in his 2010 book Northern Light that the truth may well have been that the canoe the Bletcher saw that day was in fact the canoe that had escaped from its moorings and had possibly been retrieved by someone else. This actually makes some sense, as the only other missing canoe found was the one that Robinson and Son discovered on the Gill Lake portage at the south end of Canoe Lake. Alas, all the details as to where Thompson's canoe was found, when it was found, and by whom, and whether it was overturned or not, are inconclusive. I thought now might be a good time to take a musical break. Here's Ian Tamlin again with his song, Down at the Tea Lake Dam, from his 2014 walking in the footsteps cd celebrating the group of seven that he so kindly agreed to share with us
1: well the light's not right the color's not right the moon's not right by me i should be fishing plain as the eye can't see fly tight tight i breeze so light there's an arc in the ark you see I should be fishing so fishings where I'll be Anybody wants me Don't you tell' them where I am I gotta fly in the mouth of a big bro trout Down at the Tealake lake dam Anybody wants me Don't you tell' them where I am I gotta fly in the mouth of a big broken trout Down at the tea dam. Troubling mind of a womankind and Don't sit well by me Said we should be married Oh, when how can that be? Now love's one thing, but a wedding ring Sure does scare me That kind of fishing Don't you set your hooks on me Anybody wants me Don't you tell them where I am I gotta fly my big rope trout down at the Tea Lake Dam. Anybody wants me, don't you tell them where I am. I got to fly in the mouth of a big world trout. Down at the Tea Lake Dam. Don't you tell them where I am I got a fly in the mouth of a big brook trout Down at the Lake Dam Anybody wants me Don't you tell them where I am I got a fly in the mouth of a big broke trout Down at the Lake Dam Art, they say, don't pay the way You're a fool, I have been told That ain't no picture Your colors aren't too full Rocks, trees, trees and rocks. What's in that you see? I should be fishing these troubles chasing me. Anybody wants me? Don't you tell them where I am? I gotta fly in the mouth of the big brook trout down at the tea Lake Dam. Anybody wants me, don't you tell them where I am. I gotta fly in the mouth of the big brook trout down at the Lake Dam. I've got to fly on the, mouth of the big world
0: down lake Dam. Reviewing correspondence on the Death of a Painted Lake website from Dr. McCallum and the Thompson family that were donated to the archives in the 1990s suggests that at the time there was lots of suspicion swirling around with some of them falling on the shoulders of Shannon Fraser. First must have been the talk about his silence about the telegram from George Thompson that he'd received instructing that Thompson's body be conveyed to Owen Sound. It's unclear why he organized the original burial at Mowat Cemetery if he'd already received this telegram, as Winifred Trainer suggested. But if the telegram had arrived after the burial, perhaps Fraser kept silent because he hoped with Thompson's burial in Moat Cemetery the family would let things be. But other correspondents suggest that he was more likely concerned that he'd be stuck with the bills from the undertaker, Flavelle and his embalmer, Dixon, especially since he hadn't ordered a metal casket, which they would have brought had they known that the body was to be shipped to Owen Sound. The whole episode seems to have confirmed Winnie's prior annoyance with Fraser. When he had the gall to ask and receive from Thompson a $250 loan to purchase canoes, when no one in Huntsville and environs would loan him the funds. This generosity was not out of character for Thompson. In September, Tom's sister Margaret reported to Dr. McCollum that she'd met with Winifred Traynor at the CE, the annual Canadian National Exhibition, in late August in Toronto. Traynor, she told McCollum, had expressed to her concern about the trustworthiness of the Frasers and cited as evidence this same $250 canoe loan. Trainer said that the loan had been paid back, but in small amounts, which she felt was inappropriate. It's not clear if she was restating her annoyance that Thompson had been taken advantage of by Fraser, or if it was his slowness in repayment that so bothered her. Her reaction, though, was to say that Fraser was, quote, the meanest man she ever saw, and that it wasn't just she who thought so, that her parents did as well. In addition was Fraser's tardiness in returning Thompson's belongings to the family, disputes over the bills he provided to the estate, and the gossip that he was allegedly spreading around Canoe Lake. The most controversial of these rumors was the notion that perhaps Thompson had committed suicide, and that it wasn't an accident at all. The first to report this to the family was J.W. Beatty, a friend of Thompson's, who, as mentioned previously, built the Stone Memorial cairn. He wrote and shared what he'd heard with William Harkness, Thompson's executor, who got quite bent out of shape, both because of the spreading gossip, but also his dismay that Beattie would ever believe such a thing. The news eventually made its way to George Thompson, and while possibly influenced by a recent newspaper article, suggested in a letter to McCallum that fall that perhaps foul play was at work at Canoe Lake. Fraser, he wrote, was perhaps... Quote, Dropping these hints of suicide so as to throw off any suspicion of foul play against himself. When confronted by George Thompson, in a written reply dated December 1917, Fraser vehemently denied that he had mentioned any notions of suicide to the coroner, as George had intimated, and that he and Mrs. Fraser were deeply hurt that the family would think such a thing, especially since they had given quote, so much of their time and money to make things comfortable for all concerned. Whatever the the real truth was, by this time things between the Frasers and the Thompson family had deteriorated, and for whatever reasons were never resolved. Interestingly enough, the Thompson family also severed communications with Winifred Traynor. According to Clauges, in the many deaths of Tom Thompson, the Thompson family believed, based on her letters and the few times that some had met her, that Winnie Trainer did not have a full quote, and confident grasp of her mental faculties, whether this impression was due to her ongoing grief over Thompson's death or some other matters of concern is hard to say. Meanwhile, at Canoe Lake, the gossip subsided, and things seemed to be back more or less to normal. That August, Winifred Trainer spent several weeks in Toronto visiting her friend Irene Ewig, and later that fall traveled to Northern Ontario for several weeks. In early November, Winnie and her mother departed for Philadelphia, where they stayed until late April the following year. Dr. McCollum continued to work on protecting the Thompson legacy. He wrote an article for Canadian Magazine that was published in March 1918, commenting that, quote, "...with the tragic death of Tom Thompson, there disappeared from Canadian art a unique personality." Thompson's short and meteoric career The daring, handling, and unusual subjects of his pictures, the life he led set him apart. Living in the woods and even when in town avoiding the haunts of artists, he was to the public an object of mysterious interest. He lived his own life, did his work in his own way, and died in the land of his dearest visions. It is, of course, not at all clear whom this, quote, public was until the Group of Seven, founded in 1920, contributed to this idea. They often positioned Thompson as a, quote, lost brother who had been an inspiration both for their imagery and their painting style. McCollum's praised equally Thompson's artistic skills and his woodsmanship, which again added to the manly self-mastery and athletic aura of the man. That article, McCollum apparently once bragged, has, quote, been the source from which all the articles written about him have been drawn. A comment that is probably true. A few months earlier, in August 1917, A.Y. Jackson wrote from Europe to M.E.H. MacDonald of his distress over hearing of Thompson's death and the impact he felt that Thompson had had on he and his art. Quote, Without Tom, the North Country seems a desolation of bush and rock. He was the guide, the interpreter, and we the guests, partaking of his hospitality so generously given. His name is so often coupled with mine in this new movement that it seems almost like a partnership, and it was in which I supplied the school learning and practical methods of work and helped Tom to realize the dreams which were stored up in the treasure house, while my debt to him is almost that of a new world, the North Country, and a truer artist's vision because as an artist he was rarely gifted. Later Jackson added he has blazed a trail where others may follow and we will never go back to the old days life moved on and in 1920 a memorial exhibition of thompson's work was held in toronto a reviewer for the toronto mail and empire began by saying that the majority will be shocked and startled and amazed is to be expected but he concluded It is apparent that he possessed an immense appreciation of colour, that he was original and daring in design, that he broke away from the old études in favour of a more direct handling of his pigments, that he studied broad and comprehensive treatment of his subjects rather than meticulous detail, that he was more concerned with the idea of his composition than the manner of its expression, that he was willing to sacrifice some aerial perspective to secure brilliancy of treatment, And that he was more interested in abstraction than in paltry particulars genius however in the end escapes analysis and perhaps all that can really be said is that many of his pictures are color raptures and that the great free spirit of the northland blows unrestrained through his glowing and emancipated canvases the group of seven's popularity continued to grow although some called their work freakish, garish, and meaningless. In the late 1920s, Toronto author and journalist Blaudwin Davies was interested in the Group of Seven's work and decided to write a life story of Thompson. She authored Paddle and Pallet, the story of Tom Thompson. What seems to have attracted her initial interest were Thompson's lack of formal artistic training and his love of the natural world. She hardly mentions the circumstances related to his accidental death, but five years later, things had changed. In 1935, she self-published a corrected volume entitled A Study of Tom Thompson, the Story of a Man Who Looked for Beauty and Truth in the Wilderness. In this new volume, she focused more on his untimely death and included all kinds of supposedly new insights from a wide group of people with whom she said she had been corresponding over the previous five years. Interestingly, those who have reviewed in detail her research notes at the National Library have suggested that they show lots of opinions but very little substantive evidence to support many of these claims, as Claja's notes in the many deaths of Tom Thompson, There were conflicting stories from friends and even among Thompson family members as to Thompson's true character. Some remembered Thompson as always happy and friendly while others as moody and quiet if not morose. Some suggested they had trouble developing a vision for his life and struggled to find a path to productive work. One even suggested that Tom was considering giving up painting and returning to the trades. His siblings suggested that he loved fine clothes, food, and music, while others suggested he was, quote, happy with the trappings of his life in the park and was always generous when he had any money to spare. Some remarked that all of Tom's outdoor skills, including paddling, were great, while others felt they were of average ability. By this time, Mark Robinson's impressions and recollections showed significantly more detail than he recorded in his diary. For example, he told Davies, One day he was jovial and jolly and ready for a frolic of any kind so long as it was clean and honest in its purpose. At other times he appeared quite melancholy and defeated in manner. At such times he would suddenly act out as if he were just awakened, and be almost angry in appearance and action. Another oddity was Robinson's recounting of seeing Shannon Fraser and Tom Thompson walking down the railroad tracks towards Joe Lake Dam on the morning of Thompson's disappearance. He noted that Tom had his fishing rod with him, and proceeded to start casting into the water pooled below the dam. In one version, Robinson said he overheard Thompson remark that he intended to paddle down towards Tea Lake, and that either at the dam or on one of the smaller lakes along the way, he'd catch an enormous lake trout. He would bring home this prized fish and place it on Robinson's shelter hut doorstep, thus implying that he had finally caught the elusive old lake trout, sought by them both, that lived below the Joe Lake Dam. It seems, as Roy McGregor wrote in Northern Light, that parts of this story don't add up, as any angler of merit knows that by July, Lake trout have abandoned their small pools of water and migrated to the cooler, deepest parts of the lakes because they get too warm. It's almost unheard of to catch lake trout in the summer. Robinson also introduced at this time the idea that during the spring of 1917, Thompson, quote, painted a canvas a day showing the various stages of the advancing spring and summer, and even one day dashed into my cabin asking if he could hang those records on the walls for the summer. According to Cheryl Grace in her book Inventing Tom Thompson, Davies was the first to paint Thompson as, quote, a genius who appeared at a propitious moment in his country's history to paint the North as it had never been painted before. Davies also didn't support the notion that Thompson was an untrained artist and suggested that his fellow painters in Toronto were very much open to sharing their knowledge. She described him as, quote, solitary, supersensitive, temperamental, subject to depressions and ecstasies, a voyageur with the spirit of an Indian, a portrait of a driven, troubled, complex man consumed with the need to express the North in the only language he knew. In regards to Thompson's death, Ranger Mark Robinson shared with Davies quite a collection of new facts, that Shannon Fraser was the last person to see Thompson alive and had reported that Thompson had left Fraser's landing at precisely 1250 p.m., having checked his watch to be sure, that the canoe the Bletchers allegedly saw at 3 p.m. couldn't have been there because with the east wind that was blowing that day, this canoe would not have been there under ordinary conditions, that there was fishing line wrapped around Thompson's left ankle that Robinson had cut off that was not Thompson's regular fishing line, that in Tom's canoe there was no sign of Tom's fishing rod and his kit bag that would have supposedly been tied into the front end of his canoe, that Thompson had tried to enlist in the military in both Toronto and Kearney, but was refused, possibly because of his feet, that only one paddle, not the normal two which are used for portaging, was found lashed in his canoe, and that a friend had told him that Winifred Trainer claimed she'd been engaged to Thompson, though Thompson personally could only attest to what seemed to him be an ordinary friendship. This he based on Winnie's letters to Tom that he found and read before returning them to Martin Bletcher Sr., that he didn't believe that Thompson's body had ever been moved from the Mowat Cemetery. Intrigued, Davies wrote to the Ontario Attorney General in 1931, requesting that the Mowat burial spot be reopened. In her request, she included all kinds of other supposed evidence without saying from where or whom it had come. For example, she shared that the Bletchers served beer and cigars at the inquest, that there had been frequent quarrels with Martin Bletcher and that Thompson had written to Arthur Lysmer about them, that Martin Bletcher, an American, had escaped the draft and the U.S. War Department had come to Canoe Lake in search of him, that Thompson's friends and even Dr. McCallum had been putting pressure on him, some encouraging him to a list and others pleading for him not to that it was Bletcher, not Fraser, who spread the rumor of suicide, that Tom's legs were bound with a piece of rubber, and he was found cramped and rigid, that when fishing on the morning of Monday, July 16th, Howland's young daughter snagged her line on something, which Howland believed was a body, emerging from the water's depths, and that he opted to let it sink back down before later notifying George Rowe and Larry Dixon to investigate. But the showstopper in Davy's revised book were her rhetorical questions raising the possibility of murder. Who hit Thompson on that stretch of Grey Lake screened from all eyes that July noon? Who was it that struck him a blow across the right temple? And was it done with the thin edge of a paddle blade that caused blood to spurt from his ear? Who watched him crumple up and topple over the side of his canoe and sink slowly out of sight without a struggle? Why did it take Thompson's body eight days to rise in a shallow lake in the middle of July? Why was it that no one remarked that only a living body could be bruised or could bleed, or that his lungs were filled with air, not water? As Cheryl Grace wrote, Davies was the first author to quote link this creative genius myth with an inconclusive murder mystery. Deputy Attorney General E. Bailey quickly denied her request to the Ontario government to reopen the case. One presumes that he didn't think that Davies had provided enough additional solid evidence to warrant such an effort 14 years after Thompson's demise. Interestingly enough, according to Clages, Davies-Thompson biographies had at that time quote, little influence on the public's thinking about Tom Thompson, his life, or his mysterious death. Eventually, however, in later decades, Davy's book became a primary source that fed the myriad of Tom Thompson murder mystery stories. I hope you've enjoyed the second of this three-part series about Tom Thompson and his adventures in Algonquin Park. As I've indicated, a reference list of the titles used to support these episodes can be found in the episode descriptions on www.podbean.com and on my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com. If you'd like to know more about Ian Tamblin and his music, check out www.iantamblin.com for walking in the footsteps celebrating the Group of Seven. I've also posted on my website pictures of Tom and the many participants in this drama. Thank you for listening and for your support. We'll see you next time on Algonquin Defining Moments.